Kia ora e te and welcome to Tall Stories, Tales from the Built Environment, a podcast series by the New Zealand Institute of Building. Join us as we delve into personal stories about inspirational career journeys for people in design and construction, as you too build your own story. Pamela, woman of many worlds, tell us about your your journey, your line, your squiggle, your circularity. Absolutely. Thank you, Tommy. What an introduction. Start where you like, the middle, the end, <laughs> the beginning. Look, I'll be um, a little bit reflective. I think if I was to understand the things that I enjoy doing, it's because I enjoy spotting the gaps. I grew up in the mountains on the weekends with my family and have a long tradition in the snow and riding or snowboarding between the trees, obviously offshore, not here in Kiwi land, um, is all about spotting the gaps. So being focused on what is between those hard objects known as trees. So that's the area that I find most fascinating. And once you've made that path, then make sure you're pulling folks in behind you or leaving something, leaving the place better off so you can move on and do the next thing. So that's my little metaphor. And I guess I've been lucky to do that across uh, high-level sport, snowboarding. I've been lucky to do some creative stuff in the architecture space in terms of everything after the degree and not necessarily in the pure architecture, but building a little non-profit called Prefab NZ. And now I've landed at the Institute of Building as the Chief Executive Officer, which I find an extremely unhelpful title. But essentially, we've got a great opportunity at the Institute to reshape the way we move forward in the world, the way we future-proof ourselves. We're incredibly 40 years old. You know, 2023 is our 40th birthday. And now we have this amazing opportunity to really take a hard look at ourselves and go, what do we stand for? What are we all about? Who do we represent? Who belongs here? And what I'm seeing is the people that belong are the people who feel they don't belong in the very rigid boxes around building or some of those building associations, or they don't fit in the rigid boxes around some of the consulting, like architecture, engineering, even quantity surveying to a degree. So we're absolutely a place of belonging for the others. And these people are site managers, design managers, construction managers, project managers, cost managers. They're all managing stuff. So they're just getting the right resources, the right people, the right products, the right materials in the right place at the right time. So they're constantly interfacing. So we're just another place to give them access to people to skills, to ways to navigate some of that complexity out there. You know, if I see another report or roadmap or strategy or another plan, I mean, it's total eye roll material. So we have to filter and pre-digest and translate some of the complexity out there. So, yeah, it's a really interesting space, the Institute of Building. Whether it's going to be called an institute in the future is anybody's guess, but basically we're just rethinking everything from the ground up. Well, the insti- to call it an institute makes it sound like a tree when you're really the gap. You know, the Institute of Building is the gap between, I'm guessing, the trees of the Institute of Architects, Master Builders, IPNs and others that have actually for centuries been putting down roots. But actually the fast-moving stuff is the, the snow between. Is That's what I'm... We are so the gap. Yeah. You're absolutely right. So why are we using the same 
terminology as all the other trees. Structures. Yeah. So, yeah, that is exactly the space we're in, Tommy. You get yeah. it. <laughs> can, I, can I ask, Pam, what do you see as the opportunities in the gap? Like, what are yeah. the things that you can do? A hundred percent. And lots of people have said to me, why are you there? What is it that attracts you? Look, I think at the Institute, it's the people. I have met some really, really cool people. There are lots of fascinating individuals at the Institute of Building. And the opportunity I see is in building the community, the belonging, the collaboration, the whānau, if you like. It's creating that place where people feel safe to throw out some of these interesting ideas about how we move forward and how we future-proof. So it's really the people that are the key opportunity for me. There's obviously some really core moves that are obvious to anyone who interfaces with the Institute, who goes to an event, who looks at the website, and we're all talking about them right now. We need to be more innovative. We need to be more inclusive. That means gender, ethnicity, age. And we need to be much better at creating, say, circularity. This journey from young um, emerging student or graduate into what we're starting to call the lifer, the life member. I mean, what's fascinating at these industry associations or clubs or communities is they're all made of people wanting to give back. There's a huge amount of heart in these places. There are so many people saying, I've learnt this through these hard-won, hard-fought, difficult journeys, and now I want to give back. And it's a place where people can share those lessons. And that's the whole point, really, about trying to also create some safe spaces like these podcast stories. You know, how can we help create the space to pass on lessons and stories that then help the next uh, younger people coming through? Because we're super aware that we need to bring a lot more people through. We're simply not going to build the amount that we need to build with the existing workforce. So we have to become a more attractive, accepting, better behaved, higher valued, increasingly more professional culture, I guess. So we just need to become the place that people want to come and work or come and belong. Do you think that's part of the role? Like, sorry, that's a bad way of shaping that question, but like, how do you how do you make the construction industry more attractive as a industry body? How do you go about doing that? Well, the power of an industry body is just the tools at our fingertips. So we're all about communicating. So it's about the stories we tell. And so you can do that through podcasts, through video, through socials, through emails, through websites, through events. We have to provide a really safe, awesome place to belong and connect. It's all about connections. Everyone needs lots of people connections. Our construction industry is highly relationship driven. So it's very much about who do you know and who do they know and how can they how can we all support each other basically just to get stuff done. I guess influence is through this communication and story. So the way that we can put new ideas out or build an idea of the future has to be about the way we demonstrate that ourselves. You know, the people you put into a panel, for example, if we're really going to be about gender and ethnicity and age um, inclusivity, then we're going to have to have half of our panels and our events and our conferences, people under 35. Half of them will have to be female. Half of them will have to be non-white. That's just for starters. No more manals. No more manals. No. Gone are the manals. Yeah. I mean, we just have to lead by example. And we just have to hope that members are interested and curious and wanting a place to also belong and connect and find information. And that way, things snowball one way or another. 
Um, so this this isn't the first time you've spotted a gap. So so maybe you could tell us about some of the other gaps you you've seen along your way. For sure. So I guess you know, looking backwards, it's really easy to put in perspective, isn't it? So if I said that the spotting the gap thing was um, a policy or a, a process or the way I've done things, I think it's very much the opportunity thing. And I think Jed spoke to that, which is when one door opens, you just put a foot through it, and then pretty soon you've gone through it and you're just exploring it. So snowboarding for me was one of those things. Um, snowboarding was a sport that was just kind of coming to the fore when I went to architecture school. I did two years of architecture school and it became very clear to me that only the people who had great self-confidence were going to be able to stand behind their projects and not get crucified. So it was a very easy decision to say I need to step away from architecture school. It was very difficult to get permission from within myself to stop something I'd already started, a university degree. So that's super hard and it took me a long time. Once I was snowboarding, it was a one-year break that turned into seven years off. What made it easier for me to kind of um, accept that I'd moved away from a university degree, which has got a start and a finish, was I got into the racing and competing scene. And so everything was able to be nicely finished for me going through World Cup and the Olympics. So it was the first time um, snowboarding was at the Olympics in 1998. And I got to be the first person from New Zealand to represent the country for that, which was an awesome honour. And it also closed out that kind of chapter for me. So I went back to architecture school and finished off architecture and then went into practice and worked for a couple of my most favourite firms, Harriet Mellish, Studio Pacific in Wellington, fantastic firms doing beautiful modern architecture. I think I was more interested in the way the business was run than in doing the design. I didn't have quite the right language to be able to put that into uh, the right hearts and minds of the directors, uh, to be fair, the all-male you know, directors, um, at either of those types of places. And if I look back, I definitely got upset with the lack of strategic influence that architects have. I remember sitting in front of a computer lining up someone's bathroom tiles in their third bathroom. I didn't think they needed three bathrooms to start with. Um, so I found that very difficult, that, that lack of, uh, I guess, being able to impart knowledge. It's not like when you go to a lawyer or a doctor and people understand that relationship and pay for that service. Architecture or design has always struggled to make the public understand the value. So I became much more interested in that balance between design and business. And certainly through snowboarding, I had to learn to do sponsorship and how, you know, a sport is quite, um, sounds weird, creative in a lot of ways, and especially going through the start of a new sport that was quite entrepreneurial and creative. So again, it was that mix between design and business. So I came back to architecture school with more of a marketing sponsorship lens and so I trended towards prefabrication or off-site construction. So getting disillusioned with architecture and leaving the profession, I went into doing a master's, which is probably one of the last ones by thesis before it became a master's course, and I looked at prefabrication. And a master's is an awesome way to delve into a question you've got and come up with an answer without needing a commercial proposition. So I could look into the question, can architecture-driven prefabrication be successful? Yes or no? And if it was going to be no, I would still come out of that whole exercise with a master's. So I knew it was a win-win, if you like. I didn't know where it was going to go afterwards. And of course, afterwards, I shot off a whole bunch of applications for different things. And several came to fruition, if you like. An exhibition at Pukiariki Museum in New Plymouth. A book 
called Kiwi Prefab, the same as my thesis, and the start of this social enterprise or industry association, Prefab NZ. And from then on, just an awesome journey of people, really cool, passionate people, lots of innovation, lots of great ideas. And we had a really fabulous nine years on that Prefab NZ journey. So lots of really great things happened then. It, it seems to me that uh, something you both kind of have in common is spotting gaps, something that's not happening out there, and uh, coupling that with innovation. It's not just filling the space with a different way of doing something or just a, another look at something. It's really about how you can innovate or either come up with something new or promote something alternative like prefabs. How do you... Uh, it's a non-standard, non-regular thing to do. So how would you encourage someone to think that that's a possible future? Well, one of the ways we have technically started to try and encourage young graduates or undergrads to think about other futures is I'm an adjunct professor at Victoria University of Wellington, um, Tehiringa Waka, and we developed a course called Design Thinking Business. And this is a six-week webinar-driven course run over a summer. So you only have to tune in to tutorials or watch them recorded online. You can basically do the whole course while you're in full-time work. And we modelled it that way because I did a course by Seth Godin called the Alternative MBA or Alt-MBA, which is done entirely over Zoom and Slack and online. So the whole point of design thinking business is to help people coming through landscape, architecture, industrial, all the design aspects of the built environment, that they are developing more than just the skills to do that job. They are developing design thinking skills, creative skills, strategic skills. They can take that into commercial or government situations in a wide variety of contexts. They are not being pigeonholed into lining up someone's bathroom tiles in their third bathroom. They simply have got more options. And by having Jed involved with the course, we've been able to show them real life, real time, real example of how you can take your design thinking through an entrepreneurial journey with a built environment product or service, depending on how you look at it. So it's been really fun. And we've done it with Guy Marriage. Um, we've had lots of other tutors, Ian Lowe, who's now a design thinking consultant with Deloitte. So we're basically teaching them that they can take the way they're being taught at architecture school, which I think is a thinking degree. It's a strategic thinking degree, essentially. So they can take that thinking and do anything with it. What we have noticed is there's not a lot of talk about this at architecture school. There's a lot of talk at school about becoming architects. But what I've learnt at the Institute of Building is lots of our members have come out of that institution and they're design managers or project managers. You know, they're taking this strategic thinking and putting it right across the built environment or delivery of large-scale commercial or infrastructure. It's fascinating. This episode is proudly sponsored by Jib Plasterboard, your local plasterboard manufacturer. Jib Plasterboard offers a wide range of training programs and technical help for lining installation, fire resistance performance, noise control, wet area systems, and rigid air barrier solutions. Please call the Jib Helpline team on 0800 100 442 for technical support or register for a training session at jib.co.nz slash training and events. 
I think architecture is one of those professions and degrees where people think you do the degree and then, you know, those hundred graduates are another hundred architects, when actually some of them may become architects and partners, but many, many, many go on to do a string of other things. And unfortunately, those other things are often not as valued within the profession. They might be valued within society, but aren't always given the recognition that what that activity is that's non-necessarily a traditional work of architecture is still architectural in its manifestation. And I think you, you know, the strategic thinking degree is that often extraordinary people that you discover later, filmmakers, others, that their first education was as an architect. Absolutely. Uh, uh, the last lot of webinars we do in this six-week course show some stories of people who just happen to be, have been contemporaries of mine in my last year of architecture school, but they are designing basketball shoes for Nike. They are designing streets for cities around the world. Uh, they are... Well, the well, wayfinding example, you know, architects that go into designing signage and pathways exactly. rather than physical spaces. You know, I did the signage for the ART Centre. There you go. That lasted a few years before they took it all down. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least they found it. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's lots of options for, you know, I, I think in countries like Italy, uh, a design degree is a basic degree, just like we think of law or English here. So, yeah, I guess it's just also opening up these young people to more options because some of these paths, like I'm learning at the Institute, uh, such as project management, don't have very clear paths to get to them. So it's really cool that we just hear other people's stories and understand that there's more than one way to get from A to Z. And more often, you know, you're just doing little steps. You're going to A to B. You've got no idea where Z's going to end up. Yeah, and I think uh, there's... I mean, where's Z going to end up? Well, yeah, I, I, I found like there's almost more meaningful roles. And if you want to be in the built environment, there's a lot of very meaningful roles outside of architecture. You know, it's kind of held up as a bit of a, like, a, this is the only place you could do something meaningful. But I think the more you unpack the industry, you realise that there's a whole lot of sequence of decision makers and it's always a team effort. And within these teams, there's these really effective thinkers that are not architects and actually have a really positive impact on the project and the experience of the customer and, and how the building or product comes together. And for me personally, I mean, I never really saw the architecture d discipline as very attractive. You're um, sandwiched between, you know, a client who doesn't want to pay for it and, you know, a builder who doesn't like what you design. So, so What a shitty given, job. Yeah, Sorry. given that, so why, why did you turn up on the first day in architecture school if you had that view that, that being an architect wasn't what you wanted to do? It was, it was kind of what Pam said. I was always taught that architecture was this opportunity to explore your design process, to explore thinking about design and the world that surrounds it. And for me, wanting to go and work at Weta, that was fantastic. You know, I got all these tools and toys and ideas in my head about how to create spaces and to think about spatial problems and the interest was not drawing someone's bathroom tiles that's for sure that was a horror story and on that day with these things in mind did you envisage where you are now absolutely not no not at all i was very fortunate when i was at architecture school to get some opportunities to teach minecraft to six-year-olds and i thought that was great and i thought oh actually i might just go and be a teacher for a while and yeah here we are jed's a great teacher by the way I wouldn't say that. <laughs> oh, I love you teaching um, Minecraft. It would not surprise me sure. at all. Yeah. 
and having had kids who've been through the Minecraft pathway. Um, what about you, Pam, that first day, first week? What was your ambition and what was your surprise? Well, I think as, as a kid, I just loved drawing small spaces. Like I just loved imagining the insides of boats and caravans and small things. So I've, I've got an f- infatuation with efficiency, um, clearly, and small spaces. But the thing that uh, really struck me about architecture school up front is there's quite a lot of warning on the first week about what exactly architecture and the education is. And I think that is part of what perpetuates architecture as something where you have to end up being a registered architect, which clearly none of us three are. So it's really good that we talk about the stories about the other ways. Anyway, the three things from the first week of architecture school where first of all they taught you to stay friends with anyone around you who was studying law because you're going to need them later on. So straight away they're setting up this combative, litigious, adversarial, um, adversarial uh, culture. The second thing we got told was don't be here if you're interested in earning any money. Anyone who wants to earn money can get up and leave now. You know, the door's open. Of course, who's going to get up and leave at that point? But they weren't joking because architecture is a terrible place to try and make any money. So I think that's another really good reason to look at pathways, project management, design management, et cetera, et cetera. And the third thing is this incredibly strong tradition of the creative overrules the pragmatic, you know, the all-nighter overrules the person who wants to be there from nine to five. I mean, I had a ski and snowboard clothing business fruition that I was involved with still running um, when I came back to architecture school. And so I always had a midnight rule, right? Don't stay at school past midnight. I think only once I did an all-nighter just out of curiosity to see what actually happens in the studio overnight. Of course, they have changed some of those things now, right? They actually have, I believe, some hours where they close the building, but that doesn't stop folks going back home and doing all-nighters and being connected to each other over social media or whatever. So anyway, it's a fascinating old tradition that school So I guess get in there, take the tools you need and don't be fooled. You can make money or you can twist things to be more entrepreneurial or make of the skills whatever you want. I'm interested in your talking about (laughs) drawing small spaces from when you were young. I grew up in a Jim Beard house, really lucky that uh, it was an amazing piece of architecture, very, very compact and about two square metres of circulation in the whole place, barely 70 square metres. And so I, I think architecture was somehow, if not in my DNA, in my hair and in the dirt beneath my nails. And so I was sort of heading towards that. And the year before I started, maybe one, two years before I started architecture, there was an architect working at my father's work and came to the family for a barbecue. And he said, architecture is a great degree. You'll learn amazing things about everything. It's the broadest degree at architecture school. But don't undertake it with the expectation of becoming an architect. If you do, that's great. But if you don't, that's also great. And it's seeped into my head. And his name was Murray Clayton. And I found out a couple of years after that, he stopped being an architect and went to be a potter in the Coromandel. I think he's still there. But how uh, awesome he gave you permission. I know. And well, he just, just that idea went in. And I did want to be an architect. And I did want to design houses, which is, and everyone, when they say, goes, goes to architecture school so they can design their own house and then they're done. But um, on the first day of architecture school, the young woman next to me said, well, why are you here? And I said, oh, because I think it's a really great degree. It's really broad. I might become an architect, but I might not. And she was horrified, like, what are you here if you don't want to be an architect? Um, but she's reminded me of that on several occasions because I did become an architect, but then I became a whole lot of other things, you know, and that's 
Sharon Jansen, who is an unbelievable architect in her own right. I don't ever want her to do anything else. She's so good. But I got permission from someone else and it went into my head. It meant that whenever I did work in the theatre or teaching or writing or administering, all these other things, I approached them as architecture. It's not even an architectural lens. It's a, I'm just doing the architecture of this job or of this work. I think that's a great gift and that's something we could give all our undergraduates, soon-to-be graduates. I know it took me personally years to forgive and accept myself for not being a fully-fledged architect, for not being a registered architect. I think I probably one day woke up and went, oh, I'm not going to do that. Like I just had always thought I would end up somewhere as a registered architect in my studio because that was the dream I was sold to or that was the dream that I bought into. So I think this is the ultimate thing we can give our young people is freedom to choose pathways and the knowledge that you're going to be absolutely fine. There's no wrong and right way. And you just never know what's behind the next door. And you won't know until you explore it. So you owe it to yourself to step through and check it out. You can always come back through the door, shut it behind you. (laughs) And X frame is every much an architectural success as the practice of architecture and and tile set out. <laughs> um, what about your peers, Jed? What are some of them doing now, and how do they look at you askance? Or I think we look over each other's shoulders and we have quite great conversations about you know just how different the journey has been, and and almost remarkably how we've kind of end, ended up in the same world. You know, I look at it from a product lens and a and a, a material lens, and they look at it from a very spatial design and client facing lens, and we come together. And I think for me anyway, I've found. Like, I feel like I'm in the right place. Like, I feel like I am adding value by offering my friends as architects or budding architects a solution that solves a problem that they have, which helps them out and makes them look better. And that actually makes me feel quite good. And I think for me, reconciling the fact that I won't be an architect or I won't want to register or or have that journey um, did take some time. And it was a sort of a a realisation that that was... That was a goal. You know, it's a very easy career goal to turn into an architect. Um, easy. It's a, it's a long journey, but it's a very clear goal. And I think, you know, what makes going into another journey slightly more challenging is the goals might not be there. You know, it's not as clear cut what you're going to be and how you're going to contribute. But I definitely think as people go into the profession and they find out that there are all these other views and so you doing something else in that space isn't so confronting or challenging. And to be fair, you're in a line of what is an emerging group of graduates, to be fair, out of Wellington's um, University of Architecture, which have been about challenging business models. So of course, there's the First Light crew, which the university was really strong in supporting, who have gone out to create their own studio. And we have a podcast about them as well, which goes to the story about Flip Homes, which is developing another product aspect and Prefab NZ and that whole snug design competition was a cool part of that journey. And then of course there's the makers of architecture, makers of fabrication lot also came yeah, out. Yeah, they are and a then, huge influence, right? Yeah, so yeah. I think what we're starting to see now is, I'm going to say that snowball word, is that we're starting to see this, oh, I'm going to say that circular word as well. I mean, we're starting to see the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? There's young people influencing other young people. So I mean, what will be behind Jed will be fascinating. I mean, what's going to come up next out of the university will be really interesting. What will First Light do next? What will Makers Architecture and Fabrication do next? What will Jed post X-Frame 2.0 do? Uh, This is going to be the really interesting part of the journey for all of us, I think. It's just watching young people 
come out of architecture school or design school or any of our tertiary institutions and just really question what have we just learnt? How can we turn it into a new business model? How can I make it a product as a service? How can I not just design something? How can I make it as well? Or how can I do none of the above and just be the IP and get everyone else to do it for me and just be the, the puppet maker? Yeah, I just think we're starting to see much more interesting entrepreneurship in this space and, and, I, and talking about it. And I think the lines are much more blurred or the space is much more porous between them compared to the probably quite rigid pre-millennial world that you and I passed through. Um, and so I think that the things we're talking about might seem archaic or anachronistic in some ways. But I think that space between that you talked about before, whether you've come through architecture or maybe up from being a builder on a building site or from QS or evaluation or any other um, process and discovering that there's a robust world that's that gap between the trees that is actually essential and necessary to make a lot of the other parts work, whether that's project management or site management or cost management or innovation or any of those areas. And I think there's a lot of joy and excitement to be in and belong to the other space. And I hope that what I'm talking about is actually redundant. You know, that the world actually says, yeah, whatever, we trained as an architecture, but I, I want to build or I want to be in the theatre or on film or at Weta. And it's completely acceptable and understandable, which hopefully makes the work that you're doing, Pamela, here at the Institute of Building I, even I easier. I couldn't agree more, Tommy. We're absolutely about making that space between the other space cool. We're here to show that that's a really cool place to inhabit. And you're not alone. There's a lot of other cool people hanging out in that space in between. So it's a good club to belong to. <laughs> Full of people like Jed. There you go. People like Tommy. So we've come back to a, a full circle in our circularity discussion. Uh, I'd actually like to end this, uh, Jed, with having an understanding of where to for X-Frame and where to for you. Where to next? Um, I'm about to finish my PhD in a week, which is very exciting. So that has been a big cloud for the last couple of years, but uh, something I've really enjoyed writing and, and understanding the theory behind what we're doing and how we're doing it. And that's uh, will be very um, satisfying to hand that over. And I think then next I need to make a decision personally how I want to continue to grow X-Frame, whether that's um, on the ground selling the product, getting into the architecture firms and doing the rounds and, and bringing in the morning tea and you know selling all my friends um, a product, or if uh, I want to go into more of a, a technical world. And, and I think just echoing Pam's earlier comments, the the gap between the trees and construction is very wide. So once you start seeing the gaps, the gaps get bigger and bigger. And that's because, like you said at the start, Tommy, it's an industry that hasn't had change. And so once you start to see the gaps, you go, oh, actually, there's so many things I could be doing here that aren't just X-Frame that are equally as exciting. And maybe I've got some of the skills that I've learned along the way to start to tackle some of those problems. So for now, I've just got to keep my head down and, and make sure I, I grow this business and, and do the best that I can. But there's definitely a lot of exciting opportunities that I've got my eyes on as we grow. Nice. I can see some exponential venture capital in the built environment space. I mean, how exciting would that be to be able to pass on knowledge and investment and in growing this next generation of amazing entrepreneurial widgets and services and products? I think that would be a fantastic space to end up in. Absolutely. And I wish you both all the best in your current and future endeavours. Thanks for listening to Tall Stories, Tales from the Built Environment, a podcast series by the New Zealand Institute of Building.